And welcome to the Neighboring Movement podcast, a podcast about the power and importance of neighboring. I'm your host, Ian Campbell, the Faith-Based Program Director here at the Neighboring Movement. Today, we are releasing an emergency episode as part of a series we are doing on neighboring movements in other parts of the world. This was supposed to be released later on in the series, but at this very moment, one of the most globally important examples of neighbor power and possibility is under full-scale military assault. Let me give a content warning from the beginning. While this episode, like all of them, will certainly cover some inspiring examples of beautiful neighbor-to-neighbor relationships and self-organization, we're also talking about military occupation and invasion and all the horrors of war and justice and colonialism. Please prepare accordingly, but if you can stick around or listen to this in a more appropriate environment, please do, because this story needs to be heard, especially among relatively privileged people like us in America. We will have a special guest for you today coming from North and East Syria, a storied place whose inspiration convinced me of how world-changing neighbor relationships can be and got me to where I am today, even to this position eventually. So, Uh, We'll share that story of hope, but we are also bringing our guest, Samantha Thiel, on to share the reality of ongoing deadly attacks by the Turkish military on the region, and to learn how Americans who believe in the power of neighboring can make a difference in their struggle. But first, let me set the scene. What if there was a country where neighbors ran the government? What if we could reimagine democracy so that everyday neighbors were the most important political actor, far more so than politicians? What if in this system, you and your neighbors used inclusive, fully participatory direct democracy to decide what was best for your block? And what if every block did the same, while politicians and government had to obey and convey? They would obey specific instructions given to them by their street and neighborhood assemblies, then they would convey bottom-up decisions to the next level of representation, towns, cities, regions, all the way on up. It is hard to imagine what a democracy of neighbors could look like, but it is important to stimulate our imaginations sometimes to think about the most radical horizons of our work. At the Neighboring Movement, we help neighbors block by block move from strangers to acquaintances to relationships of mutual care. We train individuals, churches, and municipalities to discover the gifts of their neighbors, connect them together, and mobilize these gifts towards the common dreams of the neighborhood. What if we kept doing that, taking our work to its logical conclusions? What kind of worlds could be possible? Well, there is at least one place, more of an autonomous region than an official country, though it does have millions of citizens, where neighbors do run the government. So as of October 2023, the current name for this region, again, is the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria. Within its territory, three to five million people are encouraged and given access to training to directly participate in the most important decisions that affect their lives. They come together in what they call communes, coordinations of neighbors on the most local level, say 200 to 300 households, to pool resources, strengthen social life, and make decisions through direct democracy. 
They elect gender equal representatives who share the commune's decisions at the neighborhood level, district level, city level, region, canton, and the autonomous administration level. Important decisions must come back down to the communes, these close-knit groups of neighbors, for final ratification. There's such a rich history of how this revolutionary democracy of neighbors came to be, but our guest today will help us get a sense of the background. We will also post a blog post going quite deeply into the history of the revolution happening there. Without further ado, we bring on Samantha Teal, our guest and an internationalist volunteer from the UK who is currently working with the Rojava Information Center in North and East Syria. Samantha, thank you for being here. Hi, thank you for having me. Nice to speak with you. Absolutely. Yeah, so glad you're here. From the get-go, I, I wanted to get into a little background because I think understanding the Rojava revolution and the autonomous administration can be quite a learning curve for people. There's so many acronyms and so much background to get into. So for those who know nothing about the Kurdish movement, democratic confederalism, or the revolution underway since 2012, how would you introduce them to all that? And then also, I think most Americans are, you know, might not have a clue about this diverse range of internationalists like yourself who have left their home countries to support the revolution. And so maybe you can get into that as well. And feel free if you feel like there's anything that you want to speak to regarding your personal sport story of what brought you to North and East Syria, um, to share that as well. Mm, yeah, so I guess, um, no, what's happened here since 2012, yeah, should be understood in this longer history of the uh, Kurdish political movement in Turkey, but also in Syria and Iraq and Iran together. Um, and I think... Um, this colliding with what happened in Syria in 2011, which knows this like kind of unexpected, yeah, period of chaos, which um, the like Kurdish political uh, actors and organizations in Syria were able to really seize upon to begin implementing their vision of how uh, a democratic uh, society could and should be. And so, yeah, what happened with the advent of the civil war or the war in Syria was that um, government forces withdrew from these Kurdish majority, like northern regions of Syria. And there was kind of this power vacuum, which um, Kurdish political actors were really able to like seize upon and you know, mobilize their popular support base, which was strong and significant. Um, no, not least due to the oppression that Kurdish people had really suffered under their Assad government. And those set up their own structures, their own uh, civil councils in uh, different cities, um, different localities across northern Syria. And as this expanded uh, through you no know, years of also fight against ISIS, um, and as there, the area controlled by um, this kind of Kurdish-led political and then military force expanded. Um, 
And uh, no, it wasn't just a kind of taking of territory, but at the same time, there was this whole, and still is known, this ongoing democratic system being built up um, with communes created in towns and villages, local councils created in cities. And there are no like cantons established at the higher level, bringing together cities and villages of one area. And then finally in 2018, the autonomous administration of North and East Syria was like announced as a kind of uh, overarching body, bringing together all these regions um, that were no longer under the control of Assad or the kind of classic Syrian opposition forces. Um, and yeah, the no, the, originally it was a Kurdish-led project. Now the land kind of uh, under the control of the autonomous administration of North and East Syria is you know, including Arab people, uh, Syriac people, Armenian people, and Kurdish people, some Turkmen people too. So it's this really like ethnically, culturally, religiously diverse area. And the point, I guess the political like point that all of those uh, really at the forefront of this project emphasizes that, okay, in the beginning, this was no, a Kurdish led um, project, but what we want is to not be uh, creating these kind of divisions and we want to no, think of a democratic vision that encompasses all the people that are living together in an area. And if you talk to the people who are kind of um, leading the city councils or on their uh, like village commune committees, for example, those who are maybe at the political forefront of what's happening here, they really emphasize that um, no, the point is to build a different kind of democracy, not just say we don't want Assad and uh, no, not just align with opposition, but saying we have a third way here. Um, and no, this emphasis also, I guess, maybe listeners know, maybe they don't know on the women-led aspect of what's happening here. They're saying that actually, uh, no, through conversations with, yeah, political leaders, they place a big emphasis on um developing women's autonomy uh and seeing this kind of liberation as women as a precondition uh of like a democratic region um and so this has seen like women's organizations built up this has seen like these women's houses in every city built up where women can go to for like help for solving their problems for like addressing patriarchal issues in their uh home in their work um, and so, yeah, I think the overall, like last, no, it's been 11 years now, has seen the development of this, uh, no attempt at a kind of alternative democracy that is based on having lots of different levels of governance. So you have these like communes and cities and villages where people, the people living in that locality are making the decisions that are related to their local life. You have so the city councils and then you have like canton governance and then this overall autonomous administration so that's kind of one i guess leg of the like political idea here and then the other leg is that no you want to uh really make steps in terms of women's liberation here and that's another point that's emphasized a lot talking to people here and then the third point is uh ecology this often also gets brought up as kind of uh no these three principles this is what the, those like at the forefront, I would say, of the project here really push that we want to have these three 
kind of legs, ecology, women's liberation and democracy. And on this basis, this is kind of the basis, I guess, that attracted um, people from all around the world to come here and support in different ways. And I myself like have experience in journalism and media activism. And so like I came on the basis of you no know, being politically interested in this. I mean, we live in times where it's evident that there's kind of a crisis of democracy and many of the things we think of as democracy are not what we feel is truly democratic. And I think there's this hunt, there's a search for uh, what democracy truly means and what does it mean at a grassroots level for people to themselves um, like lead their own democracy. And I think, no, this is an idea that's really compelling a lot of people. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, for me, I came here to work for the Rojava Information Center, or we call it the RIP, which is a, like, um, yeah, we're on the ground news and information center here that aims to connect outside journalists, politicians, activists, civil society actors, no politicians with uh, information, news, like on the ground photos and interviews from what's happening here. No one um, trying to, yeah, cut through like the propaganda of the, uh, no, Turkey makes a lot of propaganda in negative ways. And also, no, you have like uh, kind of heavy military propaganda also from um, like the military actors here, no, who will, uh, so you kind of have this, yeah, like Turkish propaganda on the one hand from the Turkish government, and then like on the other hand, a kind of strongly, uh, um, like strongly positive, everything is <laughs> amazing propaganda on the other side. And Rick really wants to you know, cut through that and say, okay, we will share what is actually happening here and we will connect people outside who want to know with sources on the ground. We will be this bridge, you know? And I felt like I'm interested in this, political project here and I wanted to um, no, use my skills in some way that would um, benefit that and that's what brought me to the RIC and I think other people around the world know, have been compelled to come here to participate in what's happening here in different ways um, for example joining like women's organizations here or no there's obviously a, quite a long record of people from different countries who have come to join the military um here to fight isis so that's like another no there's a kind of diverse range of people who have come here yeah as they've been touched by the political aspirations here thank you so much that was a perfect answer so thorough yet concise you captured you know a lot of the nuance and i know that there's so much more that we can dig into and personally the first time I heard anything about this political project in North and East Syria, the first thing I did is just scour the internet for, for more information. So I hope this pushes people to do the same. And the Rojava Information Center has been an incredible resource for years now. And I really, I really appreciate your story and, and the work that you're trying to do there. I think that the center does a great job of showing the reality on the ground. And I appreciate you kind of mentioning some of the, you know, just the necessity of pretty much any military conflict, how it often creates, you know, from from all sides, images that, you know, are propaganda in the way of getting information out, but also in the way of making it a little bit difficult to discern 
the realities on the ground. So I appreciate your work and thank you for that context. So you come from the UK, so you've lived in in the heart of the Western world, but I also know that you ha- you are you know actively working and living in North and East Syria. So I was I was curious, how would you describe the differences in Western societies you've experienced and the society in North and East Syria? especially as it relates to relationships that people have with their neighbors, big focus of our work, and the ways they do or do not organize with them? Mm, I mean, no, of course, when you go somewhere very different to your own home, you suddenly see your home much more clearly for what it is. And yeah, I think this point on like neighborhood, neighborly relations is one of the things that really jumps out at me here in terms of like societal differences, how just how close neighborhoods are, just how open somehow every family, every house is, that neighbors are always popping in and out of each other's houses, that it's so normal for your neighbor to just come over and you welcome them in and you drink tea together. It doesn't matter if they didn't know, uh, message you beforehand to let you know that they're coming. You don't need to ask why they've come. They just come and it's it's normal. You uh, accept the guests at any time. And um, yeah, this closeness no, also has an aspect of looking out for each other, of you know, being uh, aware of who's in the neighborhood. And there's also no, in the situation here, that there's a, no, there's instability, insecurity, there's attacks from Turkey. This kind of thing is a, I see it really as, yeah, this form of neighborhood defense that people know uh, their neighborhood well that they know when things are not right that they know when um yeah someone who's maybe not meant to be there or isn't doing something uh maybe doing something suspicious is there and i think knowing this also crisis in policing that we see like in the u.s and uk no and other like western countries where the kind of role of the police is being questioned a lot like who are they actually protecting what do the police actually do for us these kind of alternative like ways of keeping a neighborhood safe noah um here very much already in the neighborhood like this closeness within neighborhoods means people know their neighborhood well and therefore they in some way are protecting it just going about their daily life because they have this like yeah intimate connection within the neighborhood people are close to one another and people know each other's problems and people know know who kind of should and shouldn't be doing what and maybe to us this might sound oh, too intrusive or too uh you know you don't want everyone knowing your business but i think um yeah for this idea of like what it means for a neighborhood to be able to defend itself this is quite an important thing especially in this conversation about well, what's the role of the police and yeah how could no neighborhoods be without the police um now other um cultural or like societal um differences that come to mind is you no know, this uh lack of individualism i i would say and like the a real spirit of what you have, you share, even if you have very little. And for example, something I learned quite soon is if you are holding like a, I don't know, maybe you've gone to the shops and you've brought like warm bread and maybe you have five like warm breads in your hand and you walk past someone you know, you have to give them one, no? Like 
I think at home you would never do that. You've bought your food, you've paid for your food, you will eat your food. But here it's so rude. If you have something that's nice, you immediately share it. If you see someone you know or, yeah. So this is really, a, yeah, something you really feel here. I know also when, yeah, like me coming from a very individualist society, it's kind of can be hard. You're confronted with a lot of your own individualism all the time. Definitely. It's fascinating. The people of North and East Syria, despite all that they've gone through, um, have been just the most gracious and welcoming and, yeah, just absolutely hospitable people that I've ever met. And I love the way that you've spelled out some of those differences. I'm curious to what degree some of those things are kind of pre-existing culture of the Middle East and the long history of different ethnic groups living together and, you know, different backgrounds in kind of religious hospitality or just cultural hospitality in general. And to what degree some of this might be especially kind of sharpened through revolution or the Mm. revolution bringing them about altogether new, new patterns of behavior. Yeah, no, for sure. This is like something that's, yeah, culturally like in in the wider Middle East. And I think at least no from conversations, from interviews that the Rick has done with like political or women's leaders here, it really comes across that the aim is to take these like positive qualities that are already existing in the society, but give them a more political uh, framework. And you really see this with the buildup of the communes in like, um, no, in each village or neighborhoods in the cities, communes exist as this like, uh, no organized way that the people can come together and kind of assess and take decisions on their local situation. And this, no, having a more like structured framework uh, that allows people to like really live together as neighbors and think about what that means. And, um, yeah, also, you know, from interviews with commune, um, uh, like, yeah, people who are really active in their local commune, it also comes across that they've, um, yeah, really pushed this idea of the closeness of a neighbourhood allowing for the, like, self-defence of that neighbourhood. And no giving this, like, quality of closeness a more political framework you know in the context of the insecurity here as well and they know these i guess you talk to anyone in the society here you make any interview and they will say look like we are in a situation of war and um knowing what is going on in your locality around you is very important but also if you talk to um people who are organized on the the women's committee in the communes especially we've made a lot of interviews here and they would really emphasize as well that for women to have this framework of coming together um, through their commune uh, without the men in their area to discuss their problems, to make their proposals, to take decisions related to the women of the area, having this in like an organized manner with the objective of um, no furthering uh, women's liberation um, is a really important thing. Again, taking things like positive qualities that are already existing in the culture, in the society, but giving them a kind of political uh, spearhead, I guess. Yeah. 
That makes a ton of sense. Yes. Thank you for spelling that out. So from your perspective, what are some of the biggest achievements of the revolution? And I'm specifically interested, do you have any stories of times that those achievements really started to feel real for you? Hmm. I think, I think one big achievement that really comes across when you know I kind of here as an outsider or when you um, know I'm making, yeah, like in the work, you know, we make a lot of interviews with people. So you get to talk to quite a few different people. And what really strikes you is the um, kind of level of political awareness that many people have, ordinary, like no, not just political leaders, but kind of ordinary people, everyday workers, um, no grandmothers, children, like this, um, yeah, the way that people are really able to um, see their life and the world around them, the world in the region, but also the wider world, and really um, have a kind of uh, political analysis that connects their individual life and their city life to the situation of the wider world. And that this awareness um, no influences what they do in their life and how they go about their life and um, this kind of, uh, yeah, po like politicization that you see in just people in general. And I think no, really, um, maybe many people in the world could look at the world and tell you, look, things are not so good in our world. I mean, we have a climate crisis and we have no problems of lack of democracy and we have problems of oppression and injustice everywhere you look. But to really be able to um, analyze this in a way that connects it to your life and your situation and the big picture, and then to be able to think, okay, what action do we as people collectively take to address this? This is quite an impressive thing, I think, for like a large amount of the population to have, but that is really what comes across here. And I think that is not just a product of kind of one part of like the political efforts that have been undertaken here, but it's kind of like a, uh, no, what I mean by that is it's not just connected to, for example, the women's side or the ecological side, but it's, it all together has, yeah, created this situation where you have a really politicized population. So I think that is, yeah, a big success. Yeah, that's excellent. I think it's interesting all the interviews that I see um, and everyone I talk to, I mean, I think part of it is in a war, you really do have to be tuned in to what's going on just, just for survival. But at the same time, it seems like there's a lot of emphasis on kind of bringing education through all aspects of life in the society from, you know, all the different ways that communes have, trainings and education structures to the way that there's so many journalists and media outlets participating right there on the ground in people's lives. It just seems like the the, the popular education is, is a real important part of the revolution. So I want to get into the communes a little bit more. You have done a good job kind of spelling out a little bit how they work 
curious, do you have any personal experience, whether it's interviewing people from the commune, it sounds like you might have done that, but um, or sitting in on a meeting? Could you tell me in what ways can like just the average neighbor um, walking into the commune house wanting to participate in some sort of way? In what ways can that average neighbor find a, a way to plug into political life in those structures? Mm. Yeah, so we, yeah, like you said, we've done quite a lot of interviews. We're actually working on a report right now about the commune system, although it's taking some time, so it might not be ready for a while. But yeah, we've, um, how can the average person participate? So the communes have uh, like co-chairs, like one man and one woman who like chair the commune. And then there's a committee of people around them who are kind of responsible each for a different aspect of life. For example, health, the health committee person or the youth committee person or the women's committee person in the rural communes, maybe the agriculture committee person. Um, and so no, they'll be like um, working on the, uh, no, their kind of specific issue. Um, and the co-chairs are doing the overall management. And I would say, you know, a lot of the everyday kind of engagement of people with their communes is somehow on a maybe like mundane level, like they need to go to the commune to get subsidized bread and subsidized gas, for example. But these are also, you know, the essentials of life. I mean, without bread and cooking gas, you can't live. And somehow, you know, the decisions taken around, okay, how is this distributed? How are we allocating this? No, this is also an important thing that people participate in. And a lot of the meetings are around, no, these basic things of like, okay, the commune is the uh, way like these subs uh, yeah, subsidized kind of essentials are distributed. And so there's a lot of uh, discussion and meeting about this. Uh, no, because it's like an important issue directly connected to survival in the everyday. Um, and then, for example the women's committee of the commune, which is connected to Congress star, like the women's kind of umbrella movement. Um, yeah, the women's committee will receive any like women in the area who like, are coming to them with a problem or, um, yeah, for example, in their family or in the society or in the workplace, they are having problems related to patriarchy. Um, and then the women's committee can either try and solve it themselves or will take it up to the Malajin, the women's house of the wider area. And Malajin is where, like, it's the kind of primary solving place for problems related to women and to patriarchy within the society. And for example, no problems between husbands and wives or between uh, young girls and their parents or their uncles or whoever it is, no? And these kind of... Um, yeah, like mostly familial problems get taken here and they aim to solve them in a way that you know, doesn't lead to things going to court or doesn't lead to violence within the family and doesn't lead to patriarchal violence. They try to you know, um, bring people together on this way to, on the one hand, educate, like educate people about you no know, patriarchal behaviours, um, control over women, what it means to think of women as not property, um, and then also to solve the problem. Though. So it's kind of both education and both problem solving at the same time. And so this is also the work of the Women's Committee of the Commune. 
And then people also know will participate in electing these people. I remember going to an election once, a commune election, and no, for some like positions like the co-chairs, there was a lot of people who were wanting to take up the co-chair responsibility. No, and they would also be, yeah, these people who kind of have a lot of respect within the neighborhood maybe and who people trust. And so they would standing up um, and people know would like, yeah, vote for them. And there were other positions that no one wanted to fill. I can't quite remember which ones, but I remember there was one that they were saying, please, can someone fill this position? We want someone on this committee, no? So it's not like everyone in the neighborhood is dying to take on a big responsibility in the commune. I mean, this work is unpaid and people also know the economic situation here is not good and people are uh, generally right now struggling. And so no doing this like heavy commune work for no money is maybe not something everyone can take on. And so it's not like, uh, every commune is kind of perfectly functioning with a full committee. Um, yeah. You mentioned that, well, you mentioned the Malajin, the women's houses and the the role that some women in the, in the Malajin might play in conflict resolution and, and kind of, mediating against uh, patriarchal violence. And then you mentioned all of these positions of uh, co-chairs and being involved in, in the committees of all the aspects of life. And you did say that, you know, not everybody, not every commune is just, you know, e finding easy, um, you know, it, finding it easy to fill all of these positions. But because there are just so many communes out there and there's so many roles to play in the commune. It does seem like there's a lot of um, kind of natural leaders in the society who, you know, the maybe a higher proportion of, of people stepping into some role of, of leadership. And I don't mean it in a hierarchical way, but just in a, you know, allowing their gifts to kind of plug into the wider community and, and to take some role of responsibility um, towards the, the collective community. I'm curious, is the, the way that people's gifts, uh, you know, their natural talents and passions kind of show up and are recognized by the society, is that just a product of uh, people living so closely together and having that kind of communal life? Or are there specific mechanisms that the society there has for kind of discovering the gifts of people in the local commune and kind of nurturing those gifts towards some role of participation or responsibility in the community? Hmm, that's a good question. I think, yeah, for sure, on the one hand, you have, yeah, this closeness of the society and the neighborhoods, meaning that, yeah, there are these kind of people who are seen as um, leaders, yeah, in this non-hierarchical sense, in the sense of they are trusted and they are, respected maybe for their ability of maybe mediating between conflicting parties or they are no seen as someone who has a lot of experience in the in certain work or in a place and so they're kind of trusted in this way but then I think also particularly with the issue of women's leadership it's really been a product of the efforts of the last 10 years to put uh, more women and young women into positions where they can slowly like take on more responsibilities and especially because you no, know, like uh maybe 
yeah, 10 years ago, for many women, not much was expected of them that other than that they would you know, be in the house and take care of the family around them. And so, for example, having women on the women's committees in the communes, um, really giving them this responsibility of uh, mediating and problem solving in the society is something that no, like, uh, developed skills that are probably not maybe so much allowed to develop or were not valued, no, were, for example, the skills that it needs to run a household, maybe are no shut away in the house, not in the public eye, but they're still strong skills that can also be put in this more communal framework of, uh, yeah, working in the commune on the women's committee, for example. And so, no, I think the organized and kind of really pushing way in, in which um, like women have been uh, pushed into different positions of responsibility within all the way from no, the local commune level to like women's organizations and cities to the level of the autonomous administration has, um, yeah, developed skills uh, or taken skills at work for private use and put them to a more public collective communal use. Um, and I think, no, anyone who um, has done a lot of like housework or family care work knows that this work is demanding and challenging and hard and hones very certain skills and that those skills can also be put to use for like a more communal and collective purpose as well as in the house. I don't mean, uh, I don't know, does that make sense? Oh, it, it makes complete sense. And it, it does seem to be this trend where the movement seems to be looking deeply into the culture that's already existed, not saying, you know, very specifically, it seems like the Kurdish movement and Abdullah Ojalan, the Kurdish kind of theorists behind a lot of these ideas, are is, was never like a lot of people in the West casting society as a negative term or, you know, kind of writing off the average person and the ways that their life has so much possibility of just the the communal interactions that they have on the small scale has so much possibility to be kind of mobilized towards the collective dreams of um, the Kurdish people and of the whole society. So it, it just seems like throughout there's this trend of, of recognizing that the seeds of the revolution have always been there and there's a nurturing. Is that kind of correct? Mm, yeah, I think that's a good way of uh, describing it. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about the West for a second. You know, so I'm here in the United States and in Kansas, and you mentioned also in the UK that both of us come from very individualistic cultures um, compared to North and East Syria, especially. Here in America, we have this very serious epidemic of loneliness. And the there's the what we call the social fabric and just the social participation of the average person has so degraded that it reminds me of what Kurdish leader Abdullah Ocalan calls society side. And of course, society side can happen in a lot of ways. You know, we're in no way facing the the level of, you know, military attack and and all of that. But in in some ways society can be killed through just excessive individualism and people keeping in their homes and not being as comfortable talking to their neighbors. And so it's hard to imagine 
you know, something like this happening in America where we would decentralize political power down to the street and neighborhood level when most of us could not tell you more than one or two neighbors by name. And so there's this pervasive feeling that our homes are just where we go to rest after a long day at work. And yet, when you talk to the average American, they're almost universally jaded about politics. They feel like they have very little autonomy over the decisions that affect their lives. And, you know, we long to know our neighbors, despite largely forgetting how. And so at the Neighboring Movement, that is our purpose. Um, training people to move from strangers to acquaintances to relationships with their neighbors. And yet, it can be a trap a little bit, it gets really easy to feel content when we get to the point where we know our neighbors by name, we're starting to exchange mutual care, and we're spending time celebrating with each other. This feels so good and so new that it, it can be a point where we're just content and that that's the pinnacle. In your opinion, or maybe the opinion of the Kurdish freedom movement, should Americans be content at that step? Or is there a bigger goal we should be taking is there something deeper than good social and caring relationships with our neighbors? Mm, another good question. Um, um, yeah, what I really see um, here is that, okay, those good social and caring relationships were always there. And yeah, I also feel this from my own like home context no i want to strive for these good social and caring relations of neighbors and when that happens it's yeah amazing an amazingly rare and beautiful feeling right because we're not used to it but um what really stands out with the political efforts here is that they say um no look at the world kind of see the problems around you and then think, what can you on this local level together, you and your neighbors, you and your area, you and the people around you, do to address them, do to somehow make things better, to improve the space around you in a way that's like beyond just yourself. Um, and so I think also in our, uh, maybe not just our countries, no, maybe in most Many, uh, no, not just England and America, but other countries, right? There's this delegation of responsibility for making things better. We, uh, no, we let the government, for example, have this responsibility to improve our lives. Um, and then, uh, or maybe no certain organizations also, like civil society organizations are there, yes, but we maybe don't believe so much that on this neighborhood level, on this local level, we can actually use our connections, use our closeness, use our like common power to make a change when we see bad things happening around us. And no, I don't say this is like zero uh, non-existent in like England or America. I think often you see, for example, um, maybe like a green area is going to be demolished to make room for like, new housing, for example, these kind of things can really mobilize uh, people on this local level to come together to try to change something in their situation. But if you no, know, these kind of, uh, this kind of political activity is obviously stronger when there is the good social caring relations underlying it when they're already there. Um, 
but I think no, in a lot of these instances, um, the people, the neighborhood, the area are unsuccessful because no, they don't have their yeah their kind of level of political organization is not so strong. And maybe if they had something like a commune to really think about what our our what are our local problems, what issues do we see around us and what can we do to face them in a more organized long-term way not just reacting to a current kind of threat to the local area like our green space is going to be demolished no if they had something more underlying long-term structural way of coming together then things would be different and so I guess that is the uh yeah that's the step after the good social caring relations yeah so maybe like moving from strangers to acquaintances to relationships to something like co-creators, or I think there's this good British term that I'm thinking about. It's like reheval, right? Like, isn't that a, like, I don't know, way a friend or something like a, 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 a deeper than a friend, like going along the way together. It seems like we're, we're in need of some conception of that, of like, we're tied together inherently what we live next to each other. And so we need each other and we mm. don't just need each other, but the world needs us when we're putting our heads together and acting collectively and mm-hmm. that we can go on a path towards co-creating the neighborhood. Well, so lots to think about as far as, you know, how we can learn from this struggle and i do want to ask a little bit more about your thoughts on what we can learn from this struggle in north and east syria in a moment but before we do that i want to get into the current situation i believe that it escalated on october 5th but there's been this kind of state of constant drone attacks and you know threatened threatening larger invasions from the turkish state for a long time but I saw this is maybe even an outdated statistic now. I mean, things are happening, but as of Monday, it was North Press Agency was reporting 172 warplane, drone, and artillery attacks on key civilian infrastructure and other targets. And, you know, one specific incident that stood out, um, attack that stood out was on an internal security forces base that killed at least 29. So can you give us some context? What led up to this latest wave of attacks and what is the situation like on the ground? And then how can people in Western countries who really feel genuinely like they want to speak out against these atrocities or, or make a difference in some way, how can they help? Mm, so, yeah, like you said, no, there's uh, always somehow a ongoing like low level uh yeah there's always ongoing low level attacks i mean the drone strikes here are pretty constant and the shelling from turkey uh on like border areas or areas near the turkish occupied areas of north and east syria but then um yeah a few days following the suicide bomb attack in ankara which uh injured two policemen and was claimed by the pkk um erdogan um well, the Turkish government made uh, allegations without evidence that the attackers in Ankara came from Syria and said he would target uh, infrastructure here. 
Uh, and he, yeah, very quickly made good on that promise and launched a yeah, devastating wave of uh, warplane and drone and also artillery attacks, really decimating oil, electricity, uh, water and gas infrastructure across the region. Um, the last statistics I saw was a total of 304 strikes and most were artillery, this like just shelling, intense shelling of kind of border villages. Um, but the warplane strikes particularly, you know, were targeting this essential humanitarian infrastructure. Um, and uh, the oil strikes are particularly devastating, given that the autonomous administration like is has not much choice but to rely heavily on oil income uh, to fund itself. And no, it uses this money to um, subsidize bread and gas for the population and to engage in like post-conflict reconstruction, rebuilding no irrigation channels and hospitals and schools. Um, and so, no, its income is not so big and strikes on oil infrastructure really dent it. And also a lot of the electricity infrastructure here is not old and to get replacement parts is difficult, especially as to get parts from outside due to kind of economic embargo and difficult border conditions is also hard. It's not easy to just repair these big infrastructures. And in the region, there's only one gas bottling plant, which was hit and is now inoperable. Um, and it was really this systematic targeting of these essential infrastructure uh, here that Turkey carried out to cripple the region socioeconomically. But also, I think you really see the aim of you no know, trying to create a division between the autonomous administration and the people, because if the autonomous administration cannot uh, provide the kind of basics of life for the people, the people are, of course, going to... Uh, become no angry and the life is already difficult here. The economic situation in Syria as a whole right now is bad with really high inflation, prices rising, people struggling to meet basic needs. And the autonomous administration provided electricity free of charge, but there wasn't so many hours per day that it was running. And now in the kind of north uh, northern regions, particularly the Jazeera region, about 2 million people roughly are like not connected anymore to this general electricity supply. And some people have private neighborhood generators, but others don't. And this general supply also, no one's supplying hospitals and bakeries and pharmacies and these kind of uh, important in, yeah, infrastructure for like everyday life. No one's also taken a hit from this, these strikes on uh, electricity. And no really making life that was already difficult here even more intolerable here, which encourages displacement. And so Turkey has for a long time been saying it wants another ground invasion in North and East Syria. And the US and Russia have not given a green light for this. But it seems like with these kind of attacks, um, no Turkey goes some way towards achieving its aims here by making people want to leave the region, by making people not see a future here because there's no stability and no uh, security. And so, no, it's really, if people don't see a future here, then it's obviously difficult for uh, the political like aspirations and projects here to develop well. Um, and so, yeah, there was like, by and large, no international condemnation of what was happening. 
Uh, I guess, no, the current situation in Israel and Palestine is kind of taking the headlines. But uh, no Israeli airstrikes on humanitarian infrastructure in Gaza have gotten a lot of attention, whereas the Turkish airstrikes on humanitarian infrastructure here have gotten very little attention. And even the coalition, which is supposedly the partner force against ISIS with the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces here, has not lifted a finger to stop Turkey uh, attacking the region. And so, yeah, if people... Uh, yeah, what should the international community do know to help? I think, on the one hand, bringing more attention to what's happening here, bringing attention to this systematic destruction of essential infrastructure, and then no pressuring politicians, uh, pressuring those who are in the uh, decision-making seats um, to actually take a stand against what's happening here. seems yeah it's it's so hard to hear this because it seems like a lot of these places of in- infrastructure have been destroyed before and then people come out and do their best to to replace them i see you know that's got to be so much work and we know that i think it was last year there was a strike on I don't remember exactly what the infrastructure was, but people went out there to try to fix it and try to help people who were injured. And then there was a second strike. It just seems in some ways like they're they're trying to bleed hope from the society. And yet so many people that I've talked to in North and East Syria uh, through it all are far more hopeful about the world than most people I know here. It's so, it's it's weird. Can you maybe give some insight into what is it that has, and I know that not everyone, like obviously people are leaving, you know, pe- you know, but for those that decide to stay and be a part of the society and the resistance, what is it that gives them hope? And how have you seen that hope kind of play out or spread through the society? Hmm. What is it that gives people hope? I think on the one hand, like seeing the changes that have happened in the last 10 years. And I mean, 10 years is a short time for so many changes in society to happen. And on the one hand, everyone will tell you very openly that the no economic situation is far worse now than it has ever been before. Um, But in terms of like political uh, freedom, in terms of women's freedom, in terms of uh, yeah, having a democracy in the like true sense of the word. No, there's been so much progress here in the last ten years, and those gains now are something that people want to protect. Um, if you feel like you have been a part of building something, maybe you won't abandon it so quickly. And when you see the changes that you have been a part of making. I guess this is also a big uh, source of hope. And also seeing, I guess, um, no, on the one hand, there's this 
like widespread international lack of care with what's happening here. But also, no, there is many like interested journalists and activists and people who are no inspired by the project here. And I think the interest given from the outside also maybe makes people feel even more like they are doing something that is special and important here. And I think also um, everything that's been overcome so far. I mean, ISIS was no close to um, like overrunning Syria and Iraq and led really by the Syrian Democratic Forces with the, no, as the on-the-ground force of the coalition, as the aerial force, they managed to defeat ISIS. And I think that as a big victory, um, know that this, yeah, land was somehow liberated from this forest that from the stories of anyone who lived under ISIS or close to ISIS, no, was uh, kind of the worst possible imaginable nightmare. And that this, yeah, this new, like, newly freed land, they would say, is itself a source of hope. That's great. Yeah. Well, you you touched on it, that people look at what they've done and what they've achieved, and then the interest that people around the world have taken in their struggle. And of course, as you mentioned, internationalists, even, you know, Backing up and, and moving to North and East Syria through all of this, you obviously people are looking like Westerners around the world are looking to North and East Syria and the Tanis administration and the Rojava revolution and looking at that and taking lessons and 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 motivation for their own struggles. So you've also covered some of this pretty well, I think, but are there any other lessons that you think Westerners could learn from the resilience and achievement achievements of North and East Syria? Hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I guess my first answer to that would be like the lesson is hope, that the hope has so much power. Um, but I guess, yeah, tying into this, like um, being able to, still have hope in the conditions you're in and just because something is not as perfect as it could be to like still be hoping and I really think for example uh no ecology here is spoken about as one of the kind of foundations of what this uh like society and life should be like based on and then no here you have the autonomous administration heavily relying on oil income to fund itself because it doesn't have any other sources of income, or at least now it has more, but maybe especially three, four years ago, it really didn't. Um, and so now they are forced to sell, to burn, to use excessive amounts of oil, which uh, no, maybe you could say, okay, how do you make uh, a kind of ecological society when this is the conditions you're in? But despite these conditions, continuing to think, okay, what can we do ecologically? Yes, we have this kind of massive, like, structural uh, issue we're faced with, but, like, um, no, there's, if you speak, yeah, with ecological organizations here, the, the hope they still have and the ideas they still have and the ways they're still trying to do what they can, to push what they can, to see where can we make a difference is astounding, really. You think, how do you have this level of hope? And also knowing this place that's suffering from the effects of climate change on the one hand, exacerbated by 
Turkey limiting the flow of the Euphrates water into Syria, creating like really drought-like conditions. No, the yeah, the level of the all the like main uh, rivers and like tributaries here is going lower. It's posing so many ecological problems, and I think you could easily assess the area and say no, it's ecologically catastrophe, uh, an ecological catastrophe. But still, um, despite these conditions, no, the people who are kind of really leading the ecological uh, efforts here still have hope and are still like working uh, super hard to to you know, realize their hopes. So I think it's on the one hand hope and on the one hand, on the other hand, like what, like doing, you no know, accepting that things will not be perfect, that you are in some conditions and you have to survive in those conditions. This is great. Yeah. Thank you so much. This has been, such a gift to me this conversation and you know i do leave both very motivated to spread the word about what is happening you know of course the the positive and the negative and to you know take lessons into our own our own efforts here and and in kansas and throughout the united states so yeah this has been such a, a great conversation where can people find the work of yourself or the Rojava Information Center and where else would you recommend people go for more information about what's happening there? Yeah, so we have our website just rojavainformationcenter.org where we post like our reports uh, and then our Twitter um, like at Rojava IC is like where we post more uh, updates, news, photos. We also have no other social media channels, but those are two, like Twitter and our website are our two main channels. Um, and also no journalists or like politicians or organizations that are wanting like um, interviews or photos or no information for them uh, from on the ground here can also contact us. Like this is part of the work we do in being this bridge between here and the outside. Um, and then, yeah, I guess other resources, there's many, you know, it depends kind of what aspect you're interested in. I mean, uh, like the women's movement kind of umbrella organization, Congress Start, also have their website where they share more insights from that sphere. But then there's also, no, a lot of people who, yeah, are looking more like geopolitically at the situation here. There's like the... Kurdish Peace Institute, for example, that produced more like geopolitical analyses of the situation here, um, as well as in other like Kurdish uh, areas in Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. So there's also no, there's kind of a wide range of different materials. And by going on maybe any one website, you will find others to yeah, like direct yourself towards. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Samantha. Once again, this has been awesome. And yeah, we will definitely be continuing to spread as much as we can the struggle of the people and the autonomous administration of North and East Syria. And we're so grateful for you coming on. Thanks. It was nice talking to you too. And yeah, uh, good luck with your work as well. Thanks again for listening to the Neighboring Movement podcast. You can check out all of our work on all social media platforms and on our website, neighboringmovement.org. Until next time, happy neighboring.